Once again, pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we do amen the prayers that we've already offered, and we do amen the hymns that we have sung. What a friend and keeper. Oh, what a friend and keeper you have been to our souls, O Lord. Saving, helping, loving, keeping. All glory and praise and honor be unto your name. Father, help us to see these things afresh, even as we look into your word this morning. Help your people wherever they are uh, to gather about these things and see them afresh. We pray for our brethren there in Sault Ste. Marie who are gathering for the last time as a congregation, a bittersweet end. We pray that you would be with them, that there would be great sweetness even in their sorrow, and that you would direct and guide them and be glorified in their midst. Uh, keep us all this day, we ask. Restore health to any who are sick and glorify your name. Help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. In the first verse of the first chapter of Mark's Gospel, we read these simple but significant words. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, in many ways, the gospel begins long, long before Mark ever took up his pen and wrote down those words, or Jesus revealed himself in the flesh to be the very Son of the living God. Long before that, the gospel had been promised and foreshadowed. But in a very real sense, that is the beginning of the gospel. When Jesus says and reveals himself to be the very Son of God. After his life, his perfect life, he lives out and his teaching is given. We know the rest. Then come his sufferings, his sacrifice, and his very death. Followed gladly, though, by the infallible proofs of his resurrection. Now, after that time, Jesus gathered his disciples and commissioned them to go into all the world and preach the gospel, the glad tidings, the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he ascended into heaven while the disciples waited in Jerusalem for the power to be endued upon them. The book of Acts records a number of those early gospel triumphs. God calling out a people to himself through the foolishness of preaching, a remnant according to the election of grace. We notice now from a multitude of every tongue and tribe and people and nation, God is calling them in. But notice too that far from the majority coming to faith, it is, it is only a small remnant who comes to faith. The multitude still remains in opposition, whether it be the indignation and jealousy of the Jews who oppose the gospel, who refuse to recognize Jesus as their Christ, their Messiah, or the opposition of the multitude of Gentiles when they see that their livelihood, their precious beliefs, their idolatry is threatened by what is being preached through the gospel. With one accord, they oppose the new teaching. They gather together and oppose it. Nevertheless, the gospel goes forth in triumphs. 
And I think we need to be mindful of that. Where we are today from where we were from Mark chapter 1 verse 1. That little group of people who hadn't heard the gospel when it was just beginning and now it has spread all over the world and God has gathered in so many. Today we're going to focus on how God uh, sent the Apostle Paul to Corinth to call a people out of that place. And it should be no wonder that wherever this gospel is gone, there has been opposition. Jesus said the disciple is not above his master. But Paul does not come away from his experience defeated and a doubter. He still can assert what he says in Romans 1.16, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the, Jew, the Greek. So Paul has not lost his faith in that truth, but when we find the Apostle Paul here at the beginning of chapter 18, we might notice that he is a bit haggard, a bit tired from his labors. And we'll begin to see that, I think, as we go through. As he comes to the city of Corinth, his faith in God's grace and God's purpose and design are answered and rewarded. Not in a great multitude coming to faith, but nevertheless in some. Some were coming from the Jews and from the Gentiles. God, as he writes to the Corinthians later, the grace of God was given them by Jesus Christ. Paul recognized it wasn't because of his great oratory. It wasn't because of his great persuasive skills that they had come to faith in Christ. They haven't taken up a new philosophy. It was the grace of God accompanying his word that had changed their hearts and minds and brought them to a living faith. And Paul recognizes that. And Paul comes and lets neither the wealth or the commerce or the opulence of Corinth, nor the politics, arrogance, and intrigues of Roman rule to be things that move him away from his purpose. It doesn't daunt him from his task. Oh, I'm sure that the Apostle Paul trembled in the face of it, but his faith in God was unshaken, as that will come through. He might well agree with what George Smeaton said in his work on the Atonement, to convert one sinner from his way is an event of greater importance than the, the deliverance of a whole kingdom from a temporal evil. Do we believe that today? Hear that again. To convert one sinner from his way is an event of greater importance than the deliverance of a whole kingdom from a temporal evil. Let's put some feet to that. Seeing one sinner saved is greater than wiping out the world of this plague of COVID. Do we believe that? I'm sure the Apostle Paul would say, Amen. Amen. Today as preparation uh, and considering, uh, my purpose originally was to get into the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. And just to get some background out of this chapter, but I found myself bogged down. There's too much here to rush through that quickly. So as preparation for consideration of Paul's first letter, first canonical letter, we might say, to the Corinthian church, we're going to look at these following headings. Corinth, glimpses of her history, 
Corinth gleanings of her evangelization, Corinth a gamut of this first epistle, and then the fourth point was a gaze at Paul's greeting, which we will not get to. First of all, a glimpse of her history, and I know history can be kind of boring for many people. For some of us, it's, it's very interesting, intriguing, but it can be very boring. So hang with me. As early as the 600 B.C., uh, Corinth began to show commercial prowess. Two major factors aided her in her rise to prominence. First of all was her geography. If you have a map in the back of your Bible, go ahead and look at it. Don't look at your phone and try to find a map of Corinth. But Corinth uh, was on the uh, between the Ionic and uh, Adriatic Sea, and there was just this little isthmus of land that separated uh, what is called the Peloponnesus part of Greece from the rest of Greece, which those two uh, connected section, sections were Achaia, and then beyond that was Macedonia, both of which made up Greece. Well, on that little isthmus, and it was only four miles wide in, in one point, they had created a channel. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay? So it was, it was a good place for a port, and that's why Corinth rose in prominence. There were three suitable harbors there, where ships could harbor. The rest, the rest of the rocky coast was very unsuitable for harboring ships, but right around that isthmus where Corinth was settled, there were three areas where they could harbor ships. And then over that little isthmus of land, they had uh, dug a trench of sorts, a channel. They had at times desired to dig a channel all the way through and let the water course go all the way through so the ships could pass from the Ionian Sea into the Adriatic Sea to go between them and commercial shipping could go both directions. Well, they weren't able to accomplish that in those days. They have subsequently. But what they did instead was they dealt a trench of sorts and they would pull these small ships over. They would lay down logs, kind of like the Egyptians moved the rocks of the pyramids and pulled them along the four miles into the other gulf. They would go from the Saronic to the Corinthian Gulfs and thus could connect traffic between those two seas. So it was a natural harbor and a natural port, and hence it grew in its prosperity. A second great influence in Corinth and its rise to prominence was the influence of the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians came uh, and helped them to taught them how to build ships. They were seafaring folks, taught them how to build ships and even to build warships. So they arose to prominence and power in this way. When Alexander the Great rose to power, he revived what was called the Corinthian League, which his father had started but had kind of fallen off, and united the city-states of Greece, with the exception of Sparta, Sparta just stuck to themselves and wouldn't go along with the rest. So they bonded together in this league, which broke up, however, after Alexander's conquest and death in 323 B.C. 
After that, the Achaean League was formed in 280 BC, primarily again of the city-states banding together for mutual protection, mutual uh, commerce, and the like, and they tried to ally themselves with Rome. Rome was the power, they realized that, and they tried to enter into alliance, which kind of had a rocky beginning and start. Be careful who you ally yourself with. Because by 146 B.C., things went horribly awry. Roman general Lucius Mummius attacked the League at the what is called the Battle of Corinth. He mustered some 27,000 troops, soldiers, against about 14,000 defenders. The Romans suffered minor casualties, but killed or scattered all of the defenders. The Romans then waited for three days. It was too easy a battle, and they thought maybe they were going to be ambushed. Maybe they were going to regroup and regather and attack them. But after nothing happened for three days, they went into the city, and they killed all the men of the city. And they enslaved all the women who were left. Then they looted the city, carrying away some of the most valuable art objects in all the known world. For the greater glory of Rome... They brought them back. Now, much of this went on without the general's consent. Things just went terribly awry and got out of hand, much like Sherman in Atlanta. <clears throat> so Corinth then remained kind of a fledgling, unimportant, uh, ruined city for about 100 years until Julius Caesar came, 46 B.C., and rebuilt it and made it a Roman colony. Now, the way that they would do this, they would take citizens of Rome and uh, they would invest them with authority and they'd resettle them in the city and said, okay, you're in charge. This is now a Roman colony. It became the capital of Achaia. It rose quickly back to prominence. And Cicero would say before his death in 43 B.C. that Corinth had become the light of all Greece. Now, before we pass from the history of Corinth, I want to note two prophecies from the book of Daniel. Turn back with me to, to Daniel chapter 2. I was quizzing my daughter about this the other day, and since she couldn't recall uh, too much about it, I thought it would be a good reminder for all of us. In Daniel chapter 2, you remember uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has the vision of the idol, the head of gold, uh, the arms of silver, a torso of brass, and the feet of iron, and then going out into the toes mingled with clay. Well, read with me at verse 40 of uh, Daniel chapter 2. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay." And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. 
And as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. Now this is a description of the rise of Rome. And I can't explain to you what all the ten toes mean and and the, the mixture, but this much we know and see in her history that Rome at the height of her power went and crushed other kingdoms. The same year, 146, they took and crushed Carthage, likewise uh, killing uh, most of the men of that place. So she stomped out her opponents, if you will. But what follows in verse 44 is this, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Blessed be God who raises up the kingdom of God that triumphs over all. And then turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision, the vision of the four beasts, as it is often described, the lion, the bear, the leopard, and then in verse 7, this fourth beast. And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And then he goes on to describe it further. But here again we see that uh, Rome is described as this beast that's devouring all before it with iron teeth here and iron feet in the previous section. Well, that's just a little bit of background in Corinth without saying too much about its culture, its idolatry, uh, its perversity. It became a proverb, as many of you have heard, to Corinthian eyes, meant to behave in a lewd and un unsavory way, uh, usually sexually. For the Corinthians, by and large, fornication was not looked upon as a sin. It would be worse than a place like Las Vegas today in terms of its perversity. The temple prostitutes uh, numbered in the thousands at that time. But we come in the second place to the gleanings from her evangelization. The gleanings, what can we learn, what can we gather as we look at this passage in Acts chapter 18 and see how the gospel went out and what it did, what effect it has? On this city of Corinth. Follow along again. We'll read Acts 18.1-3. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation, they were tent makers. Now, so far already, Paul's second missionary journey had been quite eventful. 
You remember he had that falling out with Barnabas back in chapter 15, and he had, they had gone their separate ways, and Paul had chosen Silas to be his traveling companion, his fellow laborer in the gospel. And they had gone first and visited some of the old churches, and then they had picked up Timothy along the way in Lystra, and they carry on. He had just, like we read, most recently come from Athens. Now, we can only speculate as to Paul's reason for leaving Athens, but he seems to have left somewhat abruptly, perhaps because the response to the gospel had been so careless and indifferent. Even after Paul had been thrust onto the biggest platform in the city, or for that matter, the biggest platform or stage of oratory discussion and debate in the whole civilized world. There he was, thrust onto Mars Hill. He didn't choose to go there, but when the opportunity knocked, he was willing to go to the Areopagus and there declare the gospel. Well, what was the response? What was the reaction? He is met with mockery and begrudging interest. Hmm, we'll hear you again about this matter. The Athens weren't cut to the heart. They weren't convicted over their sins. There was not a great response to the gospel. Paul is regarded more as a curiosity than a herald and an ambassador for Christ. Now, this wasn't so much a blow to Paul's pride, but a grief to his heart and an indication that a door for the gospel was really not open in that place. There wasn't a lot of interest. God wasn't opening a door as he had done in so many other places in Paul's missionary labors. And so I think Paul takes a cue and says, time to move on. Jesus, you remember, had taught his disciples that if they refuse to receive you and hear your words, shake the dust off your feet and move on. There's a time to move on. And Paul wasn't to take it personally. Jesus, remember, when he was instructing the 70 and instructing the seven, uh, 12 to go out and preach the gospel, gave them some very practical instructions, one of which was this. Jesus said, he that hears you, hears me. And he that despises you, despises me. So Paul, if he's thinking of that at all, says, I can't take this personally. This is the Lord's message. This is his word. That's what they're rejecting. And I'm going to go and move on to see where else there might be an opening to preach the gospel. We might think of that on an individual basis. Perhaps we're witnessing to somebody, and after a while it becomes apparent to us they're not interested at all. God's not opening their heart at all. There's no change there at all, and we've sown the seed, and we need to move on. Perhaps the Lord has someone else for us to witness to. So now he comes. Uh, there also might have been this reason. That might have been the primary reason Paul just moves on from Athens. The other thing might be this, the very real and compelling necessity to earn some funds. Maybe Paul was getting low on funds. As soon as he gets to Corinth, he gets to work, notice. He needed to provide for the work so that it could be carried on, and he had run out of money. It's good for us to bear that in mind, the practical needs of supporting the ministry. 
and supporting missionaries who are out there on the field. Sometimes they just need the funds. They're running low and can't carry on the way that we think they ought to. Sometimes we can sit back and say, well, why aren't those missionaries doing more? Why aren't they doing this yet and this yet? Not realizing how long it often takes to get things started in new places. Now, in coming to Corinth, and we do have to marvel at the providence of God in these things, coming to Corinth, Corinth at this time was estimated to be a city of some 600,000 people. And we read this, Paul, he finds a Jew named Aquila. He finds a Jew named Aquila in a city of 600,000 people. Now, there were doubtless Jewish settlements, ghettos, if you will, where the Jews had settled. Now, think about this for a moment. Let's reflect back and think of the history. How did the Jews get in all these places anyway? We just read that Aquila and Priscilla had come from Rome, that Aquila was born in Pontus. Pontus was a region on the south side of the Black Sea. How did these Jews get into all these places? Well, it was part of the dispersion, the diaspora. After they had gone into captivity under the Assyrians, the northern ten tribes, they never really settle back. And they're dispersed all over the place. And then those who returned after the Babylonian captivity were a very small remnant of the whole of the Jews that had been dispersed abroad. So, amazingly, they're in all these places. And we'll say more about that in a minute. A word about Aquila and Priscilla. An interesting couple, to be sure. This is our first introduction to them, and I won't say too much. Aquila, we read, is a Jew and a tent maker. And one might reasonably conclude that Priscilla was a Jew as well. We always read of them together. And almost always they are serving, aiding, assisting the work of the gospel in tangible and practical ways. They had come recently from Italy, presumably for in and about Rome, since the reason that's given for their departure was the edict of Claudius commanding all the Jews to depart from Rome. Now, the historian Suetonius records this event about Claudius. Claudius had banished the Jews, quote-unquote, from Rome, who were continually making disturbances at the instigation of Crestus. Of Crestus. Now, the name Crestus might be a little curious to us. What do you mean at the, at the a name Crestus? Well, according to Tertullian, uh, the, the Romans often made the mistake of substituting Crestus for Christus, for the Christ. That was the reason for the disturbance. So whatever was going on in Rome, these Jews were having a big dispute and fight about Christ. And that's not unusual for us, for we see that throughout the book of Acts. When they hear about the gospel, the Jews get jealous, they attack the Christian Jews, and they have this falling out. Well, apparently, this was happening in Rome. Now, think about that. Paul had not even been to Rome. It is doubtful that any of the apostles had been to Rome. So, this begs a further question or two. It has been now some 20 years since Pentecost. Had the gospel made such progress in the city of Rome? 
fair question. My answer to that is is uh, quite possibly, yea, probably, that the gospel had made considerable impact in Rome. We read that there were strangers from Rome in Pentecost, on, in Jerusalem, on the day of Pentecost, who heard in their own languages in which they were born, what? The wonderful works of God. They didn't go away from that experience saying, well, that was interesting. Some of them, no doubt, caught fire. Some of those took a greater interest. Some of them probably learned more about this Jesus. Is he our Christ? Is he the Messiah? And many of them must have embraced it by because by the time that Paul writes his first letter to the Romans, he says that their faith is spoken of throughout the world. It had already become famous by that time. So no doubt there was a large or a substantial gathering of Jewish Christians in Rome. And doubtless they were having an impact on the rest of Rome. And Claudius says, here's how we're going to deal with this. Banishes them all from the city. Another question that comes at this point is, what about Aquila and Priscilla? Were they Christians at this time? Good question. Here, here they're only described as a Jew. He is only described as a Jew. But by the end of this chapter, Priscilla and Aquila together are instructing Apollos, straightening out his doctrine. Okay? So either they're really fast learners and they learned from that time with Paul and now had the opportunities to help instruct Apollos, or they were already Christians, which I think is more likely at this time. They're already Christians, perhaps with an imperfect understanding themselves. Perhaps it was new to them. We read in the next chapter about how Paul, passing through the coast on his way to Ephesus, met some believers who only knew the baptism of John, who only had some sense of the Lamb of God that John the Baptist had pointed them to and didn't have a full understanding of who Jesus was. So it's very possible that Aquila and Priscilla had some grasp of the gospel, but maybe not fully. In either case, Paul is pleased to dwell with them, and there seems to be a very harmonious relationship, and that relationship carries on the rest of Paul's days. Now look with me at chapter 4. What does Paul do there? There he's uh, making tents. Maybe he needed to earn some money. He could write later that he provided for his own necessities and those that were with him so that no one else would be charged with the work of the gospel that he came there to carry on. He wasn't going to let the Corinthians say that, oh, well, we paid your whole way while you were here, Paul. Paul pays his own way, as it were. At the same time, of course, Paul says, those that preach the gospel are to live of the gospel. He's not opposed to that principle, but he forgoes it for the sake of a greater opportunity for the gospel, that that would not be a stumbling block to the Corinthians or others. Verse 4, And he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, 
Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Now, verse 4, we see here once again Paul's pattern of action, working out the principle of the gospel priority, that even this apostle to the Gentiles follows and records in Romans 1.16 that the gospel was to go to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. So he carries on that pattern, even though he is preeminently the apostle to the Gentiles, he feels the necessity, their debtors we are, as he writes in another place. We're debtors to the Jews for the heritage that we've received, that God has deposited with them, that they first should hear about their Messiah, that Jesus is their Christ, come to redeem and save a multitude. He reasons in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Look back one chapter to chapter 17, verse 1. We see this pattern of the Apostle Paul. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. So we see Paul's pattern, time and again, goes first to the synagogue, where there's a synagogue, or in the case of Philippi, where the ladies were gathered for prayer at the riverside. He goes there first. He presents the gospel. He endeavors to persuade them from the scriptures, the scriptures of the Old Testament, of all that Christ had to suffer, that this was in keeping with God's design and purpose. Now, it would be contrary to the general prevailing view of the Jewish mind. They wanted a triumphant Messiah, crushing the Romans. And the a suffering Messiah? A suffering Savior? So it wasn't easily or readily received. Now we get to verse 5 back in chapter 18. And I believe we see something slightly different here in this chapter from what we saw Paul doing in chapter 17. And it's important... And I'm going to take a simple reading of the text. If you have the ESV version, the English Standard Version, verse 5 reads as follows. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Now, if you have a New King James, which I am reading here, it's a little different. It says, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Now, the word here translated in the ESV, occupied, translated in 
the New King James as compelled, and I believe the Old King James has pressed. He was pressed in the Spirit. It has the idea of being constrained or pressed into something. The idea of occupied, I don't think, is a good translation. It is used, for example, when Paul writes elsewhere that the love of Christ constrains us. Okay, it presses on as it pushes us in a certain direction. Or we read the same word used when it says the crowds stopped their ears. They occupied their ears. Well, they occupied them with their hands, perhaps. But the idea there is that they're pressing their ears. They're pressing against them. We read in Luke 4, 38, that Simon's wife's mother was taken with a great fever. Or your translation might have, she was sick with a great fever. Well, it's the same word there. It has the idea that it it restrained her, it seized her, it pressed her, this fever that she had. I don't think occupy is the best translation. When Jesus said, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how I am straightened, constrained, until it be accomplished, there again is the same word. Yes, he was occupied with that. There's that sense in which he was occupied. But I don't think that's a good translation of that word. The King James, the New King James says he was compelled by the Spirit. The Old King James pressed in the Spirit. Now, there's a uh, discrepancy here, a textual variant, if you will, that some uh, texts have the word logos and some have pneumatos, spirit, or word. Okay? So which is it in verse 5? Was Paul compelled by the Spirit or was he occupied with the Word or constrained by the Word? Now it may well be that he was constrained by the Word to preach Christ. Okay? But I, I'm going to fall back and presume <laughs> on, on the TR text a little bit and say that I think the right translation is that he was pressed in the Spirit, and I think the right translation is pressed in the Spirit, small s. Paul felt pressed in his Spirit. What pressed Paul in the Spirit to testify to these Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Well, what do we read? When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia. Now, Paul had left Berea in a hurry. He got on a ship and he went down and he went ahead to Athens. And he left Silas and Timothy back there in Berea, figuring they would join up. They would make some contact. And you can imagine how difficult that was uh, in those times. So, Paul did have some companions who who went with him, for a while at least, to Athens. But it seems when he comes to Corinth, he's all by himself. He's all by himself, and I think Paul is wore out and discouraged. And he's got to get back to work. Perhaps he needs to raise some funds. So he's focusing on that. But... He's continuing the work that he knows he needs to do in that he's going to the synagogue every Sabbath and reasoning with them. But I think he's reasoning with them in general terms. Paul, after all, was a rabbi. He would be welcome in the synagogue to teach, to teach portions of the Old Testament without ever having to talk about Jesus. 
But I think when, when Silas and Timothy get there, they say, well, Paul, what are we doing? Aren't you here to preach Jesus as the Christ? And I think he was constrained and pressed, even if they didn't say anything. Just their presence and coming and catching up with him. Paul says, yes, now's time we're going to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. Part of my argument for that is, is the reaction. Verse 6, when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, etc. So there doesn't seem to be this vitriolic reaction to what Paul had been teaching in the synagogue for these several Sabbaths until this one. When Paul actually declares that this Jesus is their Christ, the Messiah who has come. So I believe that's what's different from what he had done perhaps in other places, jumping right in uh, to testifying about Jesus being uh, the Christ. Well, notice then from there the response of the Jews. When they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, what, what causes Paul here then to turn away? I think it's probably more than anything, he's used to opposition. He's used to that. In fact, so many times he wants to get right in the face of them. He wants to go right uh, where the opposition is and confront it. But when they blasphemed, they blaspheme, no doubt, the name of Jesus Christ, that he is not the Messiah. Who knows what awful things they said about his Savior, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But that was enough for Paul to say, I'm clean. Your sins be upon you. Your rejection of your Messiah be on your own heads. I am going to the Gentiles. And is a symbol of that, notice what he does. And he departed from there, verse 7, and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. This was probably a Roman uh, convert, uh, judging by his name, okay? He, he was uh, probably a proselyte of Judaism because he worshipped God. And now perhaps he had embraced, at least received warmly, the Apostle Paul. Okay? Now, Jesus had instructed his disciples, you remember, not to go from house to house. You go to that place, you stay there in that house. But the circumstances and the reasons for Paul moving to another house are apparent. He wasn't doing it for a better meal. He wasn't doing it because they had ham and eggs every morning. There was a symbolic reason for him doing so, uh, to further the gospel. Well, what was the fruit? There was yet fruit coming from Paul's labors. Look with me at verse 8. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Okay? <clears throat> so even apparently after Paul leaves his labors in the synagogue, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, is converted and joins him. And Paul will reference him later in 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> then what happens next? As I said, I think Paul 
had come to Corinth pretty haggard, wore out, probably physically still sore from some of his beatings, the time in jail at Philippi, and all the rest. Okay? And Paul here now, he comes, he finally opens his mouth, he testifies to the Jews that this is your Messiah, Jesus the Son of the living God, and they blaspheme and reject them. He leaves. And what's Paul thinking? Perhaps he's thinking, time to move on again. Time to move on again. Now, verse 9. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. So there was an indication there that Paul had a reticence. He was a man like the rest of us. Nobody likes rejection after rejection after rejection. But, the, but God speaks to him. The Lord speaks to him. Don't be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. The Lord himself came and spoke to Paul and encouraged him to carry on in the city, because I have many people in this city. And what's he do? In obedience. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. All right, we're going to have to move on a little quicker. What happens next? Verse 12. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. Now a little bit about this fellow Gallio. Okay, he was a proconsul in Achaia, which, in a sense, he ruled all of Achaia on behalf of the Romans. And we know the time frame in which he reigned, and that helps us to set the time frame of much of Acts. It's one of the few markers that we have that give us a definite frame of reference of time. He was proconsul from 52 to 54, or 54 to 52 A.D. And the indication might be here that he had just recently arrived in that office, perhaps, or at least he had come to occupy that office in the city of Corinth. Either way, it was sometime in that window when these events occurred. What else we know about Gallio is that he is most notably and famous for being brother of the famous Roman philosopher Seneca. Seneca was a Stoic philosopher and a statesman. He was a wise man in many ways. Oftentimes you'll hear him quoted uh, saying uh, wise things. But he was a godless man nonetheless, and no indication that he had ever come to faith in Christ. So, what happens? Gallio's here, okay? He's come, so the Jews say, let's, let's, let's get this guy Paul and they bring him to the judgment seat. Let's let this man pass judgment on him. What was the accusation saying, verse 13, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Contrary to what law? Contrary in their minds to the Jewish law. Contrary to the law of the Old Testament in their minds. And was Paul, when Paul was about to open his mouth, here again, Paul is more than willing uh, to speak in a matters of confrontation. Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing, 
or wicked crimes, O Jews. There would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourself, for I will not be a judge of such matters. Now, we might see here something of the principle of the separation of church and state, right? But there's some wisdom in leaving that matter to themselves. Of course, it could lead to all kinds of other trouble. And then when that trouble gets out of hand, all you can do is what Claudius did and kick them all out of the city because they become such troublemakers. But Gallio drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, and I... I, I looked this up and somebody said the proper way to pronounce Sosthenes is Sosthenes. And I can't get myself to say it that way because I've heard it <laughs> Sosthenes for so long. But let's try it. Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. He didn't not, it's not that he didn't know they were going on. He just says... I'm not even going to pay attention to what these Jews are up to. Now, a couple questions might come to mind. I thought Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue. Well, they, they would at times have multiple rulers of the synagogue. It may be that Crispus, coming to faith, left the synagogue, and Sosthenes, Sosthenes had come into the room or place of the ruler. But this much we know also. When we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul notes Sosthenes as a brother, as a brother. And he is co-writing that first letter to the Corinthians with the Apostle Paul. So Sosthenes comes to faith as well. When and at what point, we can't be sure. It could well be that he had already embraced it, and that's why uh, he was being beaten before the judgment seat. So Paul still, verse 18, still remained a good while, okay, already 18 months, and now a good while more, it would seem. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Sencrie, that's what I'm told is the proper pronunciation, Sencrie, for he had taken a vow. Now, Sencrie was actually one of those little harbors that I talked about that was kind of part of the metropolis of Corinth. It was part of the whole metropolis, but it was, it was down here further. Okay? We read later that Phoebe was a servant of the church in Cencrie. Sencrie. Okay? So, at some point, there's a church established at Sencrie as well, as in Corinth. Now, question naturally arises, what do you mean he had a vow? What do you mean that he had a vow? And now he's going to be shaven. Okay? He had his hair cut off. Well, if you remember your Old Testament, the Nazarite vow involved not cutting your hair. Okay? And Paul probably at some point took the Nazarite vow. Now, Unlike Samson, who was under the Nazarite vow for his whole life, there's no indication, and the Jews often practice, you could take that vow for a certain period of time. You could take it for a year or two. I'm going to take the Nazarite vow for a year or two. And Paul, even after he becomes a Christian, because he had vowed to God, 
to carry that out, carries it on till the end, and then when the time is up, ah, he gets his hair cut. Okay? Probably relieved of that because maybe it was difficult to preach with all that hair, and it would be difficult to write later to the Corinthians that does not nature itself teach you for a man to have long hair. It is a shame to him. So how, how can he teach that to the Corinthians when he's going around with hair uh, down past his back or however long it was? Okay? So Paul, no doubt, had taken this vow and, among the other things, drank no uh, fruit of the vine during that season. So Paul now uh, comes to Sencrea, and from there, verse 19, he came to Ephesus and left them there. Who? Uh, Aquila and Priscilla are left there in Ephesus. Okay. So we see some of the effects and the fruit of the evangelization of the city of Corinth and just a couple lessons uh, to take away. What can we learn and profit from what we've seen so far? First and foremost, let us not lose faith in the power of God to save sinners through the gospel. Let us not lose faith. Even though the numbers might be very few, even though the majority might oppose and reject, God is pleased to save a people, a remnant. Let us not lose faith. Let us be as bold as the Apostle Paul, even when he was beaten and discouraged, to say it is the power of God unto salvation. Second, let us take stock of the good providence of God towards us. That brings us back to the idea that Paul comes to Corinth and he finds Aquila. How often in our lives has God directed us providentially in so many good ways? At the time where we think, wow, what a great blessing. This is amazing. And then we forget a year or so later how God in his goodness and his good providence has led us along in so many ways. Let us trust God, okay? Let us rest in his keeping power for us. Thirdly, let us evaluate how we might be of service to the ministry of the gospel. How we might be of service to the ministry of the gospel with Aquila and Priscilla before our eyes as examples. Everywhere they were, they were aiding and abetting, assisting the furtherance of the gospel. They weren't out doing the preaching. They weren't out doing those front-end things, so to speak, but they were always behind the scene, helping and serving in so many ways. Paul at one point says, they laid down their lives for me. And we don't know exactly what he was referring to. But Priscilla and Aquila are great examples to us of how we might serve the Lord. And we need to pray for and look for those opportunities. We, uh, Paul writes to the Philippians, uh, you were desirous to help, but you lacked opportunity. And sometimes that's our position. Oh, what can I do more? But I don't find the opportunities. So let's pray for this coming year what opportunities we might take and do that we might assist and abate and abet the gospel to go forward. We haven't spent much time on the culture, as I said, in Corinth. And we will, Lord willing, as we get into 1 Corinthians, we'll see more of that. We will come to, the, come to that in course. But let me here exhort us to be a pattern, those of us who are married, of what a godly marriage is. 
Why do I say that? Why is that so important? Well, it would have been important in Corinth, where the pattern of a godly marriage was rare, to say the least, with all uh, the fornication, with all the the temple idolatry, uh, the temple prostitutes, and all the rest, the idea and the pattern of a godly marriage would be rare. And if we're going to see people in our own culture converted out of those perverse backgrounds and coming into the church, we ought to be for them a pattern of a godly marriage as Aquila and Priscilla working together, a husband and wife working together to serve the Lord. We need to be, um, and we need to work on that. We need to cultivate that. We need to develop that. And not only so, but also to be a pattern of what it is to be a family. What it is to be a family. We need to work on that and cultivate that. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Ye are the salt of the earth. And one of the practical ways we be the salt of the earth in our culture is to be godly examples in these areas where everything else is eroding, where everything else is falling apart. So let us be examples of that uh, to the glory of God. Fourthly, fourth lesson we should take away is that all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Sosthenes was beaten. Paul, of course, earlier uh, had been beaten. There had been the rejection, all, all the rest. All who will live godly in Christ Jesus are going to suffer persecution. It may be mild, it may be slight, it may be greater in time to come. But let us be mindful of that always. That is not unusual. That is not out of character. That's completely consistent with the way we live out the Christian life. We must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Fifth, let us be reminded and recommitted to the New Testament pattern of church planting, preaching to the Jews, then the Gentiles, baptizing believers, gathering a flock, instructing the body, appointing office bearers in time to come. See Paul's pattern time and again that he does this. Paul was 18 months in Corinth, And no mention is made of elders or deacons. That's interesting. Okay? Maybe there was such immaturity that it took a long time uh, to raise up officers in the church, whatever the things were. And obviously, there was all kinds of baggage some of these Corinthians were bringing into the church. We'll get into that when you get into 1 Corinthians. They still have that baggage few years later that Paul is having to address time and again, and of course new converts are coming into the church. Paul continues continues to minister by letter to the church in Corinth years after, addressing some basic and some greater and some thorny issues. That ought to teach us this. Our support for missions and other church plantings need to have this kind of long-term vision and commitment in mind. We're not just going to go there, uh, preach one sermon, a bunch of people are going to be saved, and walk away. That wasn't the picture or the pattern that the Apostle Paul sets before us. If we're going to support missions, support church planting works, we need to be committed to it, and it's going to cost us in many ways, in, in grief, in prayers, and in the pocketbook, if we're going to support the work of the ministry. 
Sixthly, know that those who serve in the ministry are very much men of like passions with us, who need frequent, sustained encouragement and godly pressure. Okay? Even the Mormons got this part right. They send their missionaries out by twos. Why? Well, because they read it in the gospel, yes, but they see that if one guy goes there, and you've maybe had this experience, you can be talking to one of these uh, two missionaries at your door, and one's kind of, hmm, hmm. He might be listening to you, but his fellow seeing his, his, his brother slip a little says, no, 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 and uh, speaks up and keeps him uh, from coming over uh, to our side. Well, in, in the proper sense of that, it is helpful that we send out missionaries in twos, right? At least in twos. So for the Apostle Paul, we saw that even the Apostle Paul needed the encouragement of Silas and Timothy coming alongside him to press him and to encourage him and to force him to do those things that he knew was right and not to get off course. Uh, with that, we'll say amen. Let's pray, brother. Father, there's much, much to be learned from your word, and it is our earnest prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, our earnest prayer, that you would raise up those who would faithfully preach and teach the gospel. Churches would be gathered and planted and sustained uh, till you come, Lord Jesus, till you come. And we pray that to the ends of the earth, and that you would help us to be faithful and give us opportunities uh, to support and aid and encourage and do all that you call us to uh, in this present age to your glory and honor. Keep us now the rest of this Lord's day and receive the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.